Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, good morning, Southeastern family, and it's good to see you. We have just completed uh, our two days of Board of Trustee meeting. Uh, it went wonderfully, wonderfully well. Uh, one good thing uh, in particular that happened was, though he has been serving as the interim dean of the college, uh, Dr. Seth Bible was affirmed unanimously this morning by our board of trustees, and so you can remove the word interim, and he is now the dean of the college at Southeastern. You can tell him congratulations. Uh, it was a close call because, uh, for some unknown reason, he came in sporting a suit, which is, of course, out of our culture. But worse than that, he had on a orange Tennessee Volunteer type of tie. And as a Georgia Bulldog, I thought seriously about withdrawing my nomination <laughs> for him to that position. But... Um, I'm thrilled that he is stepping into that position permanently, and he has been a great blessing here at Southeastern, believe it or not, for 23 years in some capacity, and it has been exciting to see how the Lord has raised him up. As most of you know, he has led superbly our prison ministry, and now he is stepping into this position, and from the staff, the faculty, the administration, the trustees, uh, we are all of one heart and one mind that he is indeed the right person uh, for that position. Uh, again, we've had trustees on campus, also people who love you and support you, our Southeastern Society, and I always like to recognize them. So if you're a part either of the board or the Southeastern Society, would you just please stand for a moment that our students can see you and say thank you. I want to invite you to join me this morning in your Bible toward the end of the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, shepherding the Savior's sheep, uh, God's portrait of a faithful pastor. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 and reading through verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. On October the 2nd, 1840, a man by the name of Dan Edwards was ordained as a missionary to the Jewish people. On that occasion, the Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, would charge him with these words, and I quote, Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be success. It is not great 
talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. I do believe that the call to ministry is indeed a great and holy calling. And those who are God-called and scripturally qualified for this assignment have no doubt as to what their job description is. Now, as many of you would know, Southern Baptists have been talking a great deal in recent days about exactly what is a pastor and how are we to understand the various offices of the church. And I do think the Baptist faith and message uh, has it exactly right when it says, and I quote, the office of pastor, elder, overseer they recognize those three terms refer to the same office the office of pastor elder overseer is limited to men as qualified by scripture and of course then the question becomes well where do we see the qualifications that god has for those that he calls to be an elder a pastor and overseer and there are four particular texts that stand out that we do need to be uh, familiar with. I'm often amazed, especially in churches that have one plurality of elders, which I certainly believe is biblical. They have lay elders, which I also believe the Bible certainly allows for. But I'm amazed that when you sit down with them and begin to ask them, well, do you know and understand the qualifications and the expectations that God has for you as an elder? I too often get blank stares and they acknowledge, well, not really. Not really, and I wonder how in the world can those of us who lead churches not make sure that those who occupy the office of the elder, the pastor, the overseer, number one, are God called, and number two, they know what their job description and assignment looks like. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are four texts in particular that stand out and inform us as to what God expects in Acts chapter 20. Verses 17 through 38, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders at Miletus. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, perhaps the most well-known text, Paul gives instructions to his young son in the ministry, Timothy. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, Paul gives instructions to Titus. And in our text for the morning, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Paul gives, or Peter gives instructions to elders among what he calls the elect exiles of the diaspora in chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, let me set the table for where we are today. 30 years ago, in his classic book, a book all of you should read, No Place for Truth by David Wells, he drew attention to the drop in social status that ministers held in that day. And he noted, and I quote, in a study measuring social prestige on a scale from one to 100, ministers ranked 52nd side by side with factory foreman and the operator of power stations. You say, well, Danny, that was 30 years ago. How are things today? Unfortunately, they have not improved. Lifeway Research released a study in January of 2021 entitled Americans Trust of Pastors Hovers Near an All-Time Low. Now, who are the most trusted professionals? Well, coming in number one, nurses at 89%. 
Number two, doctors at 77%. Pharmacists at 71%. Number three, but looking at 15 different professions, pastors came in seventh with only 39% of the public giving pastors high marks for honesty. Now, I think you would find this interesting in order from one to 15, starting with number one, nurses, medical doctors, grade school teachers, pharmacists, police officers, judges, the clergy at number seven, nursing home operators, bankers, journalists, lawyers, uh, they're down at number 12, business executives, advertising practitioners, car salesmen, and the least respected of all members of Congress. <laughs> but what bothers me is that we are right there in the middle of the pack, and only 39% of those surveyed said they held ministers in high esteem as men worthy of honesty, respect, and trust. It begs a question. What has led to this dilemma and this spiritual crisis? And though there are many different things that I think could be pro-offered, I think at the very core of it is that the ministry today suffers what I call an identity crisis, identity confusion. Pastors in particular have forgotten who they are and they have neglected what God has called them to do. And too often, we are more concerned about what our parishioners think we should be and we should do than we are what God thinks we should be and we should do. And so as a result of that, many today emphasize things like being good managers, good organizational leaders. Uh, they strive to excel in flashy programs, creative worship, counseling the congregation, raising money, providing administrative direction, ministering to children and youth, and all the while trying to keep their senior adults happy. And what we have done is we have set aside the priority to be ministers of the word who rightly divide the word of truth, ministers who understand we are shepherds and not ranchers. We are pastors. We are not CEOs. And though churches will vary from culture to culture in terms of their size and in terms of the things they emphasize and so on, what is absolutely essential, no matter where we are, is that we have biblically faithful ministers who shepherd well, not their sheep, but shepherd well the Savior's sheep. And I believe we are wise this morning to give our attention to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, which is a crucial text for pastors to understand who they are. It is a text given to us by the chief shepherd himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And later, I would encourage all of you, go back and read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 in the context of Ezekiel chapter 34, where Ezekiel addresses the unfaithful shepherds of whom God says in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 10, I am against you. You see, it is possible for God to be against his shepherds when they're not faithful shepherds, 
when they're not trustworthy shepherds. And so what is it that Peter teaches us about a portrait of a faithful minister? What does it mean for us to faithfully shepherd the Savior's sheep? Three overarching ideas I would share with you this morning right out of this passage of Scripture. Number one, there is encouragement for the servant of God. The context of this passage is glory through suffering, which dominates chapters 4 and chapter 5. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter has warned his readers of the fiery trials that will come upon them to test them. And perhaps he begins where he should begin now in chapter 5 with the ministers of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three avenues of encouragement that he tells us is available for everyone who has this holy God-given assignment. First of all, he says, let your encouragement come from your partners in service. He begins, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Of course, that word exhort means to encourage. It has the idea of coming up alongside of someone and putting your arm around them and encouraging them in the work to which God has called them. Peter is an apostle, but he doesn't pull rank. He says, I'm one of you. I'm doing the same work. I know what you're going through. I understand what trials you are facing. I myself am a fellow presbyteros, a fellow elder among you. And again, this generation, I think, does it better. But when I was coming up as a young minister, so often uh, pastors were encouraged to kind of isolate themselves from their congregation. And many pastors were afraid, fearful to open themselves up to other pastors for fear of being betrayed. We have to overcome both of those fears, brothers, that are called to be pastors in this room. And we have to recognize that those in your congregation, some of those persons, some of those men in particular, are going to be some of your dearest friends and your best counselors. But you also need to find other fellow ministers, hopefully within your own fellowship of elders, but you need to have people that can speak into your life, people that you can pour your heart out to, people you can be transparent with. I've been blessed in that area. I'm blessed here at Southeastern Seminary to have a wonderful faculty. Many of the men on that faculty I can confide in and know that that uh, conference will not be betrayed. I have a wonderful cabinet of brothers that love me and that support me and that have my back, and I am very comfortable in being open and transparent with them. I made some friends in the past, that uh, two in particular. Uh, They don't live in Wake Forest. One lives in Atlanta, Georgia. One lives in Plano, Texas. But dear brothers that I talk with regularly and that I, again, can open up my heart and be open with and utterly transparent with. And I want to tell you what, I don't care who you are. I don't care how God has put you together. There are going to be times when you get discouraged. There are going to be times when you want to throw in the towel. That's when you need to be able to find someone that you know loves you and believes in you and trusts you and that they can encourage you. Don't throw it in. It's not as bad as you think it is. It's probably a lot worse. No, they may not say that, I hope, but uh, it may be. But the fact matter is, hear me and hear me well, if you have this holy calling from God, you can't quit. You can't throw in the towel. You cannot drop out of the race, and God will bring people into your life to encourage you, your partners in service. But number two, 
He says our encouragement comes from our perception of the Savior as well. He says, yes, I am an elder among you, a fellow elder. But secondly, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, scholars debate. Did Peter really see the sufferings of Christ? We don't find anything in the Gospels that would indicate that he was at the cross. Well, it may be that he was from a distance. That doesn't matter. He certainly saw the sufferings of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. He certainly saw the sufferings that he endured when he was in the courtyard on the night that he was betrayed, Peter betraying him himself. He certainly was with the disciples following the resurrection when Jesus said to Thomas, here are my hands and look at my side. And he saw the scars, the evidences of the suffering of the Savior. Let me just tell you how this works for me. When, when I do have those down days and when I, I do get discouraged, it's rare, but it happens. One of the things I do is I go get my Bible and I start reading the passion narratives of our Lord in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and when I read about all that he suffered and I read about what he did for you and for me to save us from our sins it's amazing how my problems just seem to fade away one of the other things I do and you, you, you many of you know this is I love to read missionary biographies and I'll pick up one and I'll go back and read their story and recognize that though they were very simple normal regular people like you and me they did, like us, serve an extraordinary God. And this extraordinary God put many of them in very tough, difficult, and dangerous places where their hearts were broken over and over and over. And I began to realize, you know, somebody sent me an ugly email. But I didn't lose my three-month-old on the mission field because of illness. Someone wrote me an ugly letter, but you know what? I haven't been tortured for my faith in Christ. And suddenly the little things, and they really in the grand scheme of things are little things, don't become big things because the perception of my Savior puts them in proper perspective. But there's a third source of encouragement as well, and that is what I call our participation in salvation. Yes, we have fellow elders that we can seek uh, encouragement from, and yes, that we are witnesses of the sufferings of Christ, but thirdly, we are also partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. Uh, there's a song that Fanny Crosby wrote that summarizes so beautifully through song what this particular encouragement is all about. You know the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And that's all that Peter is saying right here is right now today, we have a, a taste, an inkling of the glory that someday is going to be revealed in its full and complete manifestation. And when we think about where we're headed and when we think about what we're going to receive and when we think about where we're going to be and who we're going to be with for all of eternity, there is encouragement. Stay with the holy calling and work that God has called you to. And there is encouragement for the servant of God. But then secondly, there are expectations for the servant of God as well. And you can really summarize them under two ideas. One, we shepherd God's flock. <clears throat> and number two, we serve God's flock. There it is. What do good pastors do? What do good elders do? What do good overseers do? They shepherd 
and they serve. Look at what he says there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. He begins by challenging us to shepherd God's people. It is the only imperative in this particular section of scripture. Shepherd the flock of God. Let me work backwards. The shepherd of the flock of God. Pastors make huge mistakes when they forget whom their flock belongs to. And I want to tell you something. You will treat God's people better when you remember they're God's people. They're not yours. They're not yours to be used as a stepping stone to a higher and greater influence that is of your own making and not God's. Uh, They're not there for you to fleece. They're not there for you to abuse. They're not there for you to act like a jerk. They're there for you to care for and shepherd, care for and love, remembering they don't belong to me. They belong to God. And you know what I've learned over many years of life? You'll treat other people's stuff better than you treat your own. That's counterintuitive. I don't care. It's true. If I borrow your car, I'm very careful. I might actually drive under the speed limit for once in my life. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go that far. That's, that's kind of extreme to me. But no, I'm going to be more careful. Uh, I'm going to watch very cautiously when I pull into a particular parking place or when I'm going to change lanes. I'm just going to be a little bit more careful with your car than I will be with, with my car. I don't know why. I just will. Well, I just know this. If you keep in mind who your flock belongs to, you'll treat them better. You'll shepherd them better. And the Bible says we are to shepherd the flock of God. Now, how is it that we indeed shepherd well the flock of God? Let me give you three things to keep in mind that I believe will always characterize faithful ministry and faithful shepherding. One is feeding your flock. Two is protecting your flock. And three is evangelizing among your flock. Feeding your flock, that of course involves what? The Word of God. Preach the Word, both in season and out of season. Preach it and teach it well. But also, as you preach and teach the Word, you protect the church. You protect them from the wolves and the dogs and the pigs that are out there that will try to infiltrate your fellowship and tear it apart theologically. You must protect them as well. But also, you must do the work as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, you must do the work of an evangelist. Now, it is interesting. The word for pastor only occurs in the noun form one time in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. But the verbal form occurs twice, both in Acts chapter 20 and again in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, and both times the object of the work of shepherding is the elder, is the elder, which again is evidence 
that an elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is an elder. Those three words are used interchangeably to talk about the leadership of the church, which the Bible does say in his own sovereign choice and providence, God has reserved for those who are of the male gender. But I want to say a quick word or maybe an extended word for just a moment about what does it mean to shepherd well in terms of feeding them, which means preaching the word. There are a lot of challenges in the ministry today. I think the ministry today is more multifaceted than it's ever been. And yes, you do have uh, pressures put on you to, to raise money and to lead and to administrate and to counsel. And I can go on and on and on and on. But nothing is more valuable and more important than that you feed your people well by preaching the word of God. And I do mean preaching the word of God. There are a lot of um, popular ministers out there today. Uh, some of them are on TV. Uh, many of them have podcasts. Uh, some of them have enormous, enormous platforms and influence. And sadly and unfortunately, many of the loudest voices are the least faithful. They are the least faithful. And some of them have very fine heritages that they've walked away from. And they're very dynamic communicators. They're very gifted orators. But they are just bottom line speaking the truth, pathetic when it comes to preaching and teaching the word. Some of them even mock the word. Some even say that the Old Testament is now obsolete and is no longer binding in any form or fashion upon the child of God. And they are doing unbelievable damage to the flock that God has placed under their watch care. You hear me and you hear me well. Some of you may not be very good communicators. Most of us are not great communicators. But you know what? We have a great God who gave us a perfect book that when we teach it, he promises to bless it. Whether you're great at it or not, if you will just faithfully week in and week out, teach the Bible, teach the Bible, teach the Bible, teach the Bible. I'm still convinced you cannot improve upon going through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word by word and God has not promised to bless great oratory but God has promised to bless the faithful teaching and preaching of his word I love what J.I. Packer says about preaching the true idea of preaching is that the preacher should become a mouthpiece for his text what a great statement a mouthpiece for his text opening it up and applying it as a word of God to his hearers, talking only in order that the text may speak itself, be heard, and making each point from his text in such a manner that his hearers may discern how God has taught it. I like what John Stott adds to this. We should never presume to occupy a pulpit unless we believe in this God of the Bible. How dare we speak if God has not spoken by ourselves, by ourselves. We have nothing to say. But once we are persuaded that God has spoken, 
We too must speak. Let me ask all of you a question this morning. Imagine that all the people in your church who have a teaching ministry, men and women, all the people in your church who have a teaching ministry, imagine they were to treat their Bible study classes, whether it's at the church or in a home or at a business or a restaurant, doesn't matter. Imagine they handle the Bible every time they teach it the way you handle the Bible on Sunday morning. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? They handle the Bible exactly the way they see their pastor handling the Bible. Good thing, bad thing. Let me ask that question a different way. Are you teaching the Bible week in and week out in such a way that it is replicable, that your people can learn to go out and do it well by just watching the way you do it? Imagine this. You drop dead this week before Sunday comes. Somebody from your church is going to have to stand up and teach this coming Sunday. Would they get up and pretty much do exactly what they've been watching you do for weeks, months, or maybe years? You see, that's one of the reasons why I am a, um, how do I want to say this? I want to be careful. I'm an enemy of topical preaching. I'm an enemy of topical preaching. You say, why? Well, number one, it's not replicable. If you, if you teach topically, you don't provide a model that people can go out and, and duplicate. That's one reason. Second reason I'm an enemy of it is you're basically saying God should have arranged the Bible differently. God should have arranged the Bible differently. And I'm going to improve on what God should have done. What arrogance. What arrogance. No, you see, faithful expository preaching honors both the substance and the structure of the text. In other words, I want to say what God said in exactly the way God said it. And John Stott is right. By ourselves, we have nothing to say. But if God has spoken, then we too must speak, and we shepherd God's flock. But then secondly, we also serve God's flock, and he tells us three ways that we do that. I'll just note them for you very quickly. First of all, he says we're to serve willingly. He tells us there in verse 2 that we're to exercise the oversight, the word episkopos, overseer. We're to give oversight, number one, not under compulsion, but willingly. That is for the right reason. Why do you do it? I have to do it. I want to do it. I do it willingly. No one forced me into the ministry. No one is pressuring me to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer. Sometimes people have asked me over the years, well, what would you do, uh, Danny, if you were not in the ministry? And the answer is, I have no idea. In fact, I don't think I could do anything else. I don't want to do anything else. I'm not trained to do anything else. Now, I've had good days and bad days, highs and lows, but when everything is said and done, I do what I do because I love doing it. It has never been under compulsion. It's always been willingly for the joy of the work. And so we serve God's people willingly. But secondly, we serve God's people eagerly. He says we do it willingly as God would have us. And then he says not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know, I have not met really any people that I think 
got into the ministry for money. I, I, I've never, when I was in seminary, I didn't find any of the guys there that gave evidence that they were going into the ministry because they figured they would get rich. Most of them figured they'd be poor for the rest of their lives. And so they were okay with that. Why? Because God had called them. God had called them. And they believed if God called them, God would take care of them. Amen? Amen. He will. All right? But over time, I, I've seen people change. And I've seen the priority of financial gain rise higher and higher and higher and higher in their list of priorities. And God forbid, God forbid that any one of you are ever in a meeting with a pulpit committee and they really think you're God's man and they raise the question, well, just how much money will it take to get you here? I'm not bragging. There's no reason to brag. But I can tell you it's just a matter of testimony this, uh, this morning in every position I've ever had my entire life from the time I started off as a part-time interim pastor. That is the ultimate in job insecurity, a part-time interim pastor <laughs> to being a part-time pastor to being a full-time pastor to then teaching at a college and then teaching at this seminary and then Southern Seminary and back here, I can tell you before the Lord, I never asked even one time about the money. Never. I figured if God called me, God would take care of me. And I do believe that we should be taken care of. I, I do believe that. And obviously they were paying their ministers here or he would not even had to raise this issue, but evidently had to raise the issue because even in the first century, there were people that were being more motivated now by money than they were faithful service to their master. And he says, no, 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 not for shameful gain, but again, eagerly. You love the work. You desire to do the work. It's all that you have occupying your heart and your mind. But then thirdly, he also says we're to serve humbly. This may be the most important of the three, not domineering, not lording over those in your charge, but being a tupas a type to the flock. At the core of being an example, I believe, is humility, is humility. And uh, C.S. Lewis is right. People who are humble don't talk about being humble. They don't think about it at all. It's just the natural air they breathe and it's the natural ebb and flow of their life. They're, they're like Jesus. They have the mind of Christ. And I must tell you that in this day and age, I think there is an incredibly great need for humble men in the ministry. Not bullies. In, re in recent years, if you just think about it for a moment, we've had a lot of well-known celebrity pastors. Or I don't even know what the heck that means, but celebrity pastors who did not lose their ministry because of sexual immorality, which used to be the primary cause, probably still is the primary cause. They didn't lose their ministry because of their lust for money, but they lost their ministry because they were bullies. They were bullies. They were men that would fly off the handle because they couldn't control their temper. And by the way, 1 Timothy 3 speaks to all of that as being disqualifying for ministry. And all those things are to be taken seriously. And I don't know how God's wired you because we're all wired differently. But if you know you kind of have the tendency to bully people, 
you have the tendency to kind of push people around. You kind of have the tendency that you must get your way no matter what. doesn't matter who gets run over. doesn't matter gets hurt. I really want to urge you to rethink whether or not God's really called you. And if you're certain that he has, then you realize you've got a serious area of sin that you need to let the Lord work on you in. Because what we want, and I'll say it to you this way, when my uh, boys were little, they didn't necessarily have to be a pastor, but I was always looking for men in our church that God had raised up to lead. And I was always looking for men that I could take Nathan and Jonathan and Paul and Timothy and I could point them to and say, guys, I hope when you grow up, you grow up to be like him. I hope you love the Lord Jesus like you see him loving Jesus. I hope you love the church like you see him loving the church. I hope you love your wife and your kids like you see him loving his wife and kids. And I'm going to tell you something. If you are a pastor who's known for his love for Jesus, his love for the Bible, his love for the lost, his love for the nations, his love for his wife and kids, odds are you're going to be a pretty good pastor. And you do it being an example to the flock. But that then leads us to my third and final observation this morning. There's also a future exaltation for the pastor, the elder, the overseer, and it comes from the most wonderful source of all. It comes from the chief shepherd himself, the Lord Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd in John chapter 10 and verse 11, and that he is the great shepherd in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. But here he is called the chief shepherd, the arch poimenos, the, the highest shepherd, the chief shepherd. In verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears and he is coming again, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Of course, what he is doing is playing off the crown that was received in the Olympics and also the Isthmian Games. If you were exceptionally gifted as a runner or as a wrestler or as a boxer or whatever, you might win your particular event. And they would put a piece of grass type stuff on your head. I mean, isn't that a cool deal to have? A piece of grass on top of your head. And you'd strut around like a little peacock because you won the race. You won the wrestling match. You won the javelin. You won whatever. But guess what happens to your little piece of grass on the top of your head? It dies. It fades. And yet some people give their lives for a little piece of grass or a little piece of gold or a little trophy that they can stick in a trophy cage which a hundred years from now nobody will give a flying flip about your little trophy they'll sell them at a garage sale for 50 cents did that make you feel good <laughs> but there's a different crown that waits the faithful minister of the gospel and he doesn't get it from some trophy committee he gets it from jesus himself and that crown will never fade, but it will last forever and ever and ever and ever. And you see, ultimately, we do what we do, not for a congregation. We do what we do for one, for one, our faithful king. And the Bible says to those who have been faithful in this assignment, they get him they get a crown. But I love what we read in Revelation chapter 4. There the 24 elders are around the throne. They've all got crowns on their heads. But when they reflect upon why they're there and the price he paid to get them there, they take off those crowns and they cast him before their God.
knowing that any of the good stuff that we did in this life, it was all because of him. It was all because of him. So I pray with all of my heart, God will raise up more faithful shepherds who will serve God's flock well, recognizing they do it for him. And he indeed will take care of you now and he will bless you then for your faithfulness to his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you do not leave it to our imagination as to what it is that you expect of your faithful servants. You have made it clear by what you have written in your word. And Lord, it is my prayer that the men in this room in particular that have been called to be pastors, elders, overseers, they will shepherd well the flock of God that you have given them and that they will do it willingly and eagerly and humbly. And they will do it ultimately for you because they love you so much they dare not fail in this awesome assignment that you have given them. And Lord, there's no doubt based upon all that I've said this morning, uh, we are in a crisis when it comes to the ministry. But Lord, this did not catch you by surprise. And I believe that you are going to raise up from this generation a new uh, army of pastors, overseers, elders, who will shepherd well your flock and build healthy congregations that will be on mission in their community and around the world for our great king, our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, raise them up, equip them, send them out, and help them, Lord, soar for your glory. We ask all of this and pray this in the name of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.